0: to another session of the Net Zero Carbon Summit. Aviation contributes about 2% to global, global carbon dioxide emissions, according to the International Energy Association, but is one of the most challenging sectors to decarbonize. Despite reductions in flying during COVID-19 lockdowns, demand is expected to grow rapidly through 2030 and beyond. New aircraft, uh, airlines are um, you know buying new aircraft, but they, that can be about 20% more efficient than the models they replaced. But growth in activity has historically outpaced efficiency improvement. Technology innovation is needed across the sector, including in production of low emission fuels, improvement in aircraft and engines, and operational optimization to get to net zero emissions by 2050. In the meantime, the industry is looking towards sustainable aviation fuels to reduce its emissions footprint and serve as a bridge to new technologies. But it will require huge public-private investment in infrastructure, and there's very little capacity now to produce that. My next guest is Mike Kramer, CEO of Novadev, a California startup working on an ultra-efficient aircraft design with an eye towards hydrogen propulsion. Michael, welcome to our Freeways virtual uh, event. Thanks for having me, Eric. Let's, uh, Let's start by using your expertise to explain the difference between net zero and zero carbon emissions. Uh, An industry has set a goal for net zero carbon by 2050, Um, and one of the big ways to get there is with sustainable aviation fuels, which are, you know, can be made in various ways with biomass and other things. What are reasonable expectations for SAF, and and what is the difference between those ways of calculating carbon? Yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about
1: that. First of all, let's explain the difference between net zero and zero carbon. Zero carbon means that there's no carbon anywhere in the life cycle of that fuel. That means there's no carbon introduced when you make it. There's no carbon introduced when you transport it. And then there's no carbon produced when you use it to, to fly the airplane. Right now, the only fuel that's really, truly zero carbon is hydrogen that's made from green energy. When you talk about SAF, the goal is net zero. The idea being is, can I take carbon that's already out there like CO2 from the air or leftover from, you know, let's say uh, biomass that's left over from farming, take that carbon, recycle that carbon into a fuel that I can fly the airplane on with the goal of not zero carbon, but can I reuse that carbon? I'm not introducing more carbon in the environment.
0: Do, do you think SAF, um, you know, is really, will really do much to, you know, improve the environmental footprint of the airline industry, either as a blended with jet fuel or eventually as the primary fuel?
1: Yeah, I mean, SAF's a really important part of it. Um, As part of our um, business plan, by the way, in addition to the pure hydrogen aircraft, we're also having a model with SAF. SAF is going to be a bridge fuel, but it's going to continue for a long time. There's going to be applications where SAF is going to be flying airplanes 20, 30, 40 years from now. There's things you can do with hydrogen and places in the world where hydrogen is going to be very cost effective, but there's a lot of areas where SAF is really going to be the right answer. Um, with SAF, you can reduce carbon 10, 20, 30% from existing. But remember, you're taking that carbon from the ground and you're still putting up in the air with other pollutants.
0: So at 30,000 feet, does the weight SAF burns or whatever is there... Does the burning SAF or sustainable aviation fuels at ground level versus high up uh, in the atmosphere, does that uh, change the, the carbon burn or or emissions?
1: It doesn't change the carbon burn. It just changes where the CO2 is. You know, CO2 in the upper atmosphere behaves differently. I'm, I'm not a, a chemist or a weather guy, but the CO2 up in the upper atmosphere is really where the greenhouse gases are coming from, the greenhouse effects, excuse me. It's not from the CO2 on the ground.
0: Yeah, so you're delivering it basically closer to where it's damaging. And also remember,
1: SAF is jet fuel. It's just a different way of getting there. It burns like jet fuel. It produces a lot of the, the emissions, good and bad, that you get from jet fuel. SAF could be a little cleaner, but SAF isn't the same as hydrogen as
0: far as clean and zero. So let's talk a little bit about hydrogen. Hydrogen is a, kind of a further-round technology Uh, Airbus um, and other, you know, technology companies are looking at uh, or developing hydrogen propulsion, but uh, that seems to be, you know, kind of a little bit more over the horizon, uh, at least a decade away to get some uh, flights, uh, test flights going. How does a hydrogen plane work and what would it cost to operate?
1: Yeah, so let's talk about that. First of all, when you talk about a hydrogen plane, it starts with how do you store the hydrogen? then how do you convert that hydrogen into something useful that you can do to fly the airplane? How do you turn it into propulsion? So with hydrogen right now, there's really two major and a couple other ways of storing it. The way that uh, smaller aircraft, these small regional and, and urban air mobility are storing it is in high pressure cylinders. These are very, very similar to the cylinders that are being used for trucks. So it's a high pressure gas. Problem with that is, is those tanks are heavy and hydrogen isn't great from a volume standpoint. It takes a lot of room. So an alternate way of storing that is as a liquid. Liquid hydrogen is more dense. You still would need about three times the volume of jet fuel, but it's a lot better than gas. There's issues with liquid hydrogen. It's difficult to handle and carry. Um, We're using a technology that we licensed from NASA for solid-state hydrogen, which is a little different. So that's another way of carrying it. So now I've got hydrogen on my airplane. What do I do with it? So there's kind of two schools of thought. One school of thought is using a fuel cell. Again, this is very much aligned with what the long distance truck guys are doing. I chemically combine hydrogen with oxygen from the air and I produce water and electricity. So uh, once I have that electricity, I can use it to drive a motor. There's a lot of people looking at that for aviation. Problem with that technology is it's heavy and it produces a lot of heat and it's hard to get rid of heat in an airplane, surprisingly. So the other way to produce energy is burning the hydrogen a gas turbine. The very first gas turbines ever built used hydrogen, ever tried to put gas or jet fuel in. So we know it works. But what we're doing is we're taking hydrogen, burning it in a turbine to produce electricity, and we're using turboelectric is what we call it. So the turbine produces electricity, and we're using that electricity to drive propulsors, big rotors, fly the airplane.
0: Right. I think I've seen an image of, uh, you have these, propulsors, uh, uh, along a uh, kind of an, uh, an upper, a raised wing and uh, more of these kind of propulsors along the top. So kind of a novel design. Um, I should add the air cargo sector is mostly going along for the ride. Uh, it's very dependent on the manufacturers and airlines to adjust the engines and the fuel. And, you know, some of the, some airlines are, are offering, you know SAF if the customer logistics companies you know pitch in and pay the higher cost but um, Nova dev is developing an alternative for standard and large commercial jets that you know eventually can transition to, to these hydrogen technologies so you say that's where the biggest use case is that, that the largest fuel burn and that small aircraft and electrical uh, lift uh, vertical takeoff and lift air aircraft only address the issue on the margins correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. I mean, just to put it in, in simple terms, uh, we've all flown 737s, A320s, these single aisle airplanes, that's half of the pollution that's out there. Things smaller than that, these regional and mobility, is a small fraction, like 1%. So if you're trying to do these changes to save the environment, you gotta go where the environment is being hurt, and it's in these bigger airplanes. From a cargo standpoint, That 767, 757, A330 type cargo airplane, that's the mainstay of of the big cargo people, people like FedEx, UPS, DHL. They've got larger, longer aircraft, but the majority of their fleet are these mid-size airplanes. Let me add one thing too, by the way, that's important to note. Historically, cargo airplanes have been passenger airplanes that they take the seats out. They're designed around the elbows, you know, they've got these nice curved tops you know, you can put a box in it for the same reason you could use a Greyhound bus to carry packages if you needed to, but it was never designed for it. So one of the things that we're also doing is trying to optimize this. The aircraft we're developing for cargo are designed around rectangular cargo containers. So what we're trying to do is also break that dependence on buying old never designed to carry cargo airplanes and producing a product that's ideal for freight.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, What else? So it's so you got the 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 rotor design, you know, the turbofan propulsors um, on the exterior along the wing. You've got kind of a different cargo design that can take containerized freight that makes it more. Those are the efficiency um, improvements, and then and then using hydrogen, right? Yeah, level high level of automation
1: too. um, Automating the freight process. It's really interesting when you look at. freight has been around for about 60 years since somebody first put a jet air freight. excuse me. It's been around for about 60 years. 60 years ago, we were still loading ships by hand. Yeah, you picture the old movies with the guys with the hooks, you know, carrying and dropping stuff in. Malcolm McLean said, hey, that doesn't make any sense. Let's do a standard container that's intermodal. And w- where I live in Southern California, I walk down to the beach and I see these container ships. We, we know what cargo looks like on, on a ship. On airplane, it looks the same as it did in 1959. So one of the fundamental changes we're doing is, is to try and use that model like ocean containers. Needless to say, they're a little smaller and a little lighter than a typical ocean container, but this whole idea of intermodal cargo that can be heavily automated. Really hard to do that with an airplane designed for
0: passengers. You said that it uh, makes more sense to develop an alternative energy freighter than a passenger jet. Passenger jet. Why? Uh, why is that? Is that... Um... Does that have to do with where the fueling, the limited fueling infrastructure
1: is? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons for that. So let's talk about them. One reason is the way cargo airplanes fly, the routes are different. Cargo airplanes, not always, but typically fly from a hub. You know, picture uh, Indianapolis or Memphis for, for FedEx, great example. They go out to spokes. They sit at that spoke for a couple of hours or overnight, and then they come back to the hub. Passenger airplanes, a lot of times, do loops. If you ever find Southwest Airlines, that airplane might hit eight stops before it goes back home. As far as the infrastructure for hydrogen goes, it just makes it simpler for cargo. The other thing with cargo is, you have a small number of of folks that have a large number of aircraft. Again, we, we know who the big cargo aircraft companies are, cargo aircraft operators are. They have a bigger investment to do that. They can leverage that into these mega hubs again. Indianapolis for FedEx is just ideal for something like that. So, why cargo? Number one, they need new aircraft. I talked about that. We're going to want to develop airplanes that are designed for cargo. Might as well have hydrogen and SAF as an option in that cargo plane. Number two, the reach structure just lends itself better to hydrogen. Number three, from a cost standpoint, these companies are more in control of their fuel cost in a strange sort of way than a lot of the uh, passenger operators.
0: Um, what's your, you know, you're an early stage startup right now. What is your expected time frame to, to, to bring a, a prototype out and then, you know, eventually to get to some kind of, uh, you know, um, startup or, or full commercialization. Yeah. So we've been working at it for about three years. Um, to date,
1: it's all been development, design work, analysis, root analysis, um, our expectation is by 2032, we'll have the SAF version out, and 2034, the hydrogen version. And again, just to put that in perspective, this is an airplane that's a replacement for the 757 freighter and a good chunk of the um, 767 and A330 freighter market.
0: How will you have a hydrogen plane in 2034 Airbus' is so they might not even have a plane of 2035 and 2035? I'm not even sure what that would look like.
1: Yeah, it's it's tough for the big prime. So if you think about it, if you're a Boeing or an Airbus, even an Embraer or some of the smaller ones, you've got a production line that's going. It's very disruptive for them to try to put a new aircraft in. The other thing is, is for a commercial passenger airline, that infrastructure is going to be a lot more challenging. The reason why we think we can do it quicker is, number one, an airplane designed strictly for a cargo airplane from the get-go is easier to do. It's a simpler airplane, still flying at the same speeds at altitudes, but all of that certification and all that passenger stuff goes away. Number two, um, all we are is hydrogen and SAF. We don't have to worry about stepping on toes of people with existing orders. Kind of like how Tesla was able to come out with an electric car much quicker than Ford or Nissan or, or Toyota because they weren't worried about their existing markets.
0: Right. Good point. Um, and one last question. What... Um, what kind of regulatory pressure or incentives do you see to kind of push along uh, decarbonization in aviation, either with SAF or hydrogen? Yeah, there's a lot. Right now,
1: one of the issues that aviation has is nobody pays for the pollution. Picture if you just took your garbage can and dumped it over the fence to the neighbor. That'll bother me. It's somebody else's problem. Well, with the pollution coming from aviation, and when I say pollution, I'm not just talking the greenhouse gases. I'm talking about the soot the particulate mass, these things are just not good for you. You're gonna have to start paying for that. You're seeing that in Europe already where they're looking to regulate it, tax it, cap it. So the pressures are gonna start coming from both investors saying, hey, if I invest in your company, if you're a big uh, transportation company, we need to make sure that you're being environmentally friendly but also from the regulatory agencies in Europe and in America. So you're going to have to start paying for your pollution. If you have to start paying for throwing the trash over the fence in the backyard, yeah, it gets a little more expensive to get rid of it. You might want to do something different.
0: Good point. Uh, Fascinating conversation, Mike. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you for being our guest today. And uh, for everyone else, stay tuned for more of the Net Zero Carbon Summit.
1: Thanks, sir.